We are in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Though the, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything was created by for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. How are we all doing? Oh, here we go. Continuing on in First Timothy, we're sort of at a uh, one way to say it is a, is a pivot point. We're sort of at the middle of the letter. And so, how, how are we doing so far? Are we doing okay? Are we enjoying our time in First Timothy? I am very much enjoying our time uh, in First Timothy. I, I have always loved this book, this letter. book is very generous. Um, this letter. And tonight, we're actually going to um, move uh, onward in Timothy into sort of like the second half of, of the letter where Paul starts to transition some of the discussion a little bit. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy. Looking at our passage here, we're, we have been talking about uh, this whole series about the household of God, Right? And so we're, we're sort of moving on from talking about the structure of the household of God, and we're going to start talking about uh, some instructions, some warnings, some encouragement, as Paul tends to do in his letters. He sort of rounds out his letters that way. And this is a little unique because he's writing to Timothy. He's writing to someone that he loves, that he knows, that he treats as a son. And so he's uh, going to be giving some uh, some encouragements and some warnings that are not just for him, but, but as he is a young man leading this church or is at least taking a leadership position uh, at the church there in, um, in Ephesus, we, uh, we start to see some of these things that we can kind of listen in on what Paul is talking to Timothy about, and we get to, we get to benefit from, from that. So First uh, Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read a couple of verses, and then we'll kind of look at some, some different things. Uh, tonight is going to feel a little weird just because of the subject matter, but um, I'm sure you guys will be okay. Let's look at verse 1. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciousness are seared, such an uplifting message for tonight. Let's look at that first statement there. What does Paul mean by the Spirit expressly says or explicitly says, depending on the translation that you're looking at? So what's meant by this? I think one of the things we can sort of uh, see from this, something being expressly stated, 
This is something that, that really can't be denied. I think that's, that's generally what, what Paul is going for here. But there's something a little bit more unique. So the Spirit expressly saying, um, you can sort of say, you know, a lot of things are very important. This one, though, let's pay attention to this one. The Spirit is expressly saying this or specifically, explicitly stating this. Um, the, the topic that we're looking at tonight also involves something that is going to happen in the latter times. And so it's something that the Spirit is saying, but saying in the latter times. And I think sometimes we can see, see something like this and sort of skip over and say, well, we're not at that time. Or we see that and we think, that might be a little scary. That might be a little weird. I think I might skip it. And uh, I don't think we have the opportunity to really do that. When it talks about the Spirit expressly stating these things, we can point to a couple places, and we'll go there in just a second, where this is being stated not just for the end, but that time where it talks about what, what, when are those latter times. I think we can, we can see that that might actually be for, for the right now. But even from the very first sermon that was preached, so on Pentecost, um, on that day when the Spirit came, thousands of people came to know the Lord through this sermon. What was stated in that sermon was that what was taking place was taking place because we were in those latter days. From that point onward, Really, a lot of the teaching in the New Testament, if you're to evaluate it, has to do with preserving correct and proper doctrine. Submission to Jesus as Savior and Lord and for the, uh, for the forgiveness of sins, reliance on the Spirit for continual sanctification, these things were paramount. These things are taught in every epistle, they're taught in every letter, taught throughout the New Testament. This concept and idea of being firm in faith, firm in correct and proper doctrine, is something that's extremely important. If you look at the second half of that verse, it says that there are many who will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceiving spirits, teachings of demons, scary things. But what it state, when it's stating that, it is stating that as a current issue as well as an issue in the future. Because this is so common in the New Testament, it's important for us as a household of God to really pay attention. If this is something that the Spirit is expressly saying, we need to pay attention. This isn't something that we can put off. It's not something for a different church or another time. It's something that's important for us to look at. Uh, I think from the very outset of the church, from that first day on Pentecost, I think it's pretty clear that the greatest threat to the household of God was not a physical invading army, but instead it was an invasion of a a counter-gospel idea 
or ideas, philosophies, and teachings that would draw the heart of the church away from the Lord, from the master that we serve to another master that we shouldn't serve. This is why we have so many of those warnings. In fact, go ahead and, go ahead and let's turn to Acts 2. Acts chapter 2. We're not going to read all of Peter's sermon. I mean, we could and then close in prayer and then we'd be good. But let's look at chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. This is the first joke in a sermon. You can mark it. I'm sure there was a chuckle or a laugh, a chortle, something, out in the crowd. Verse 16. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Look at verse 17 there. And in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and that your sons and your daughters will uh, prophesy, that your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And he continues on. Kind of the point to pick up here, this quotation from Joel. Verse 17 there, where you see the quotation start, The last days, in the last days, that is added. That is not in Joel. Peter adds that to say, we're not drunk. We're not speaking in other languages because of that. Instead, he's trying to explain that the Spirit has come, right? And starting to give an explanation. And he adds that phrase there, in the last days. Peter, at that point, actually identifies this this time of the church as one of the indications that we're in those latter days. The last days. And so Peter addresses that and says, hey, in the last days, this thing is going to happen, which then you could say, okay, then I guess we're in the last days. Then later on, we get additional teaching to say, actually, things that are going to be taking place in the future, that that is going to be taking place in the latter days. So how do you put these two things together? The idea was there was this sort of inauguration of, we're close to the end here. But it's not yet. There's a theological concept called the now and the not yet quality of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is here, but it's not here in its fullness. And so if we take that seriously, we can be in latter days now and still look forward to the actual last day of the Lord. Those two things can be happening at the same time. John carries on this idea when he in 1 John, we don't have time to go into this in, in great detail. John talks about Antichrist is coming, but Antichrists have come, and this idea that there's always going to be this spirit of Antichrist, that which is opposed to Christ or that which 
is attempting to usurp Christ or take the place of Christ. That's always going to be there, and it's, we're going to lead up to this actual individual who will embody this idea. There will be an Antichrist, a specific one. But you know what? We're going to experience a lot of these Antichrists, those who come in the spirit of Antichrist. Same sort of idea, same sort of concept. So let's go back to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Look at verse 2. We're going to come back to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons here in a second. Verse 2 says, Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, if we look at that real quick, that idea of liars, the insincerity of liars, and consciousness, consciences, consciousnesses uh, that are seared, this, this kind of actually goes back to what we have been teaching about before this passage here, before chapter four, we're talking about the structure of the church. We talked about the elders. What's one of the things that the elders are responsible for? It's kind of unique to that role of elder, that they have to be able to. Oh man, we're gonna have to preach that one again. <laughs> yes, they have to be able to teach. And one of the responsibilities is 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 keeping the church close to good doctrine, right? They have to be able to teach. That's one of, one of the hallmarks of that. One of the things we talked about with deacons was they have to be able to hold the mysteries of God with a good what? You remember? With a good conscience. So what we're actually seeing here is through the insincerity of liars and through those whose consciences are seared, what we're seeing is an actual breakdown of that structure to where you, you no longer have someone who is relaying God's word faithfully. They're insincere liars. You no longer have someone who's living out those teachings with a sincere conscience. Their consciences are seared. So what we're seeing is, a, is this sort of breakdown of that structure that we talked about. That's not to say there won't be elders. It's not to say there won't be deacons in these latter times. It's just that they will look like them, but not operate how they should. And it's sort of a picture of what is going on in those latter times, uh, specifically. So when we look at this passage, this says in latter times, these things will happen. It's something that we should watch out for now, right? We should look for it. We should take care that these things aren't taking place. But it's also something that specifically is going to take place in the future as well. Let's look at Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is, uh, I think, an, a really interesting chapter. This is when, geez, this is probably what we would want to do if we went back, if we went back in time and we hung out with Jesus. We'd say, okay, Jesus, just us here. What's going to happen at the end? And that is exactly what the disciples did. So what's the end of the world going to be like? And uh, Jesus waits till they're alone, and then when they ask that question, he says, okay, let me tell you. And he starts out with a phrase that I think, because it's the opening, the qualifier for this whole teaching that he's going to give, 
Let's look at verse 3. As they sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What's it going to be like? Jesus says, ready? This is the introduction. He says, See that no one leads you astray. That's the opener. Make sure no one deceives you. I think we need to hang on to that one. Let's look at verse 5. It says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. He goes on, talks about a lot of other things, but the very first thing that he says, the introduction, and he, he repeats it a couple times in this teaching, Matthew 24, he says, Make sure that you're not led astray, which tells us something. It's very possible that we can be led astray. It's a possibility. So the very first thing is, what's the end going to be like? You're going to have to really be careful not to be led astray. I think this keys in exactly to what Paul is relaying to Timothy. Looking at, and what we're going to go back to, uh, to the doctrine of demons here in just a second, or the teaching of demons. Let's look real quick at 1 John 4. Just so you don't think it's something that is just on Paul's mind, John, chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, he's talking to the church, hey, family, beloved, beloved of God, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. John carries on with that, that discussion. So this, this is something that Paul is relaying to Timothy, but it's not just a single thing like, hey, Timothy, you probably haven't heard this anywhere, but you should watch out for this. This is something that was a pretty common discussion concerning not just the latter times, but something to watch out for even during John's time. This idea that the spirits can lie to you. I had a conversation with someone in, um, in a coffee shop downtown. This is a while ago. And um, just happened to be this lady came and sat down, and I was sitting in there reading, and I'd been praying, Lord, if you want me to have a conversation with someone, just let me know, let it be clear. Well, it was pretty clear. She sat down, she said, hi. I said, hi. And that was sort of like when the Holy Spirit gives you the kick, boom. I said, okay, all right. So I just asked, hey, what's your name? What are you doing here? And she had, uh, she had an accent. I asked her, where's your accent from? And by quality, where are you from? Um, and she said that she had come from Russia. I said, whoa, that's a long way to come for coffee. What are you doing here? And she said, uh, I can't, this was interesting. She said, I came to dance. I said, oh, like with a ballet troupe or, you know, or something, you know, I don't know. I'm just asking questions. I don't know, dance. Just trying to make conversation. She said, no, I just came to dance. So just by herself. She said, yeah, just came to dance. And she talked about the woods in the surrounding areas were just so beautiful that she would just go out and she would just dance. I said, all right. 
I said, why? I felt like that was a very good question to ask. Why are you doing that? I don't do that, and I live here. Why have you traveled from Russia to do that? And she started to talk about how she had been in communication with spirits since she was a little girl, and that when she danced, she could hear them. And so she was trying to find places where she could dance and she could hear the spirits. And I said, oh, what do the spirits tell you? All sorts of things. And she started going to a bunch of different things. And she had this book she was looking through and these different things. And I just asked her the question, do they ever lie? She kind of looked at me funny. I said, if you talk to spirits, do they ever lie to you? You're going all over trying to talk to spirits. How do you know you're talking to good spirits? She's like, I don't know. I said, well, that's a, probably an important thing to start thinking about if you're traveling all over the world talking to spirits. She said, why would the spirits lie? I said, if we lined up 100 people and you asked them all a personal question, how many of them you think are going to tell you a fib? At least one, 10? She said, most of them. I said, most of them, okay. Well, what makes you think spirits are any different? Why are you just trusting anything that comes from a spirit? And it blew me away that she had never, ever thought of that. So I said, I talk to a spirit every day too. And he's given me a, a book, just like you have there, but it's older than yours, to read through. And, I've, and I have these messages from the spirit, and you know what? I know, I know absolutely that this spirit doesn't lie. I showed her the Bible, and it was, I gave her the Bible and said, maybe you should, maybe you should read this, and gave a, just a really quick little gospel thing, not much more than a couple sentences. She said, thank you, but she was really struck by that idea. She said, I had never thought about whether spirits lie or not. And from, from that day, I really started to think. I said, you know what? We as believers actually have way more in common with a lot of people who are seeking answers in the New Age and a lot of the spiritist movements. Because they're looking for something outside of their normal, everyday kind of information. They're looking for something else. But many of them don't ever think about the fact that they could be deceived. And honestly, this is something that I think even we as believers we as the household of God need to think about. I think sometimes we don't think that any of that stuff makes any difference. That stuff's a bunch of hooey. That stuff's all weird. What's worse, there are a lot of believers who don't think it's weird. They would say, I would love to go and dance and talk to spirits too. In fact, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different groups that are doing surveys to sort of figure out what in the world does the church, at least the church in America, believe anymore? They said it was rough. I think it was, now I'm trying to remember this one off the top of my head, about 38% of Christians, they would identify themselves as evangelical Bible-believing Christians, think that it's very possible we could have reincarnation. Maybe. I don't know. Just thinking about it, maybe that could be it. There are a lot of practices today that are being 
sort of retitled, repackaged, repurposed, and being redelivered to a lot of people, including believers who don't take a moment to really evaluate where some of these things might be coming from, sometimes because they have a really neat sort of Christian veneer placed upon them, or they use the right words. To be fair, didn't I do the same thing to her when I was having that conversation? I changed some of my words around. I don't normally say when I talk to God that I talk to a spirit, but I did, did that to help her kind of understand where I was coming from, and then I explained who that spirit was, but that happens, right? So can we think maybe some of those things are being delivered to us today? Some of these practices, they can be traced back, these with these new ones that are coming out, they can be traced back to a lot of ancient ideas. And we're not talking just from a few hundred years ago, we're talking to the time of Christ, sometimes all the way back to the time of Moses or before. Some of these practices have been around for a really, 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 really long time. In fact, one of the best lies concerning this, which we would probably throw into this category of a doctrine of demons or a teaching from demons, came in the garden from the mouth of a serpent said, hey, you know what? You can be like God. There's a lot of people today who are trying to figure out how they can become like God. Apotheosis. How can I transcend my humanity to become God or become a part of God? And a lot of their language sounds like language we would use. And so for us, sometimes we're having conversations with, with people and we're not having really great discernment because we never ask them to redefine words. We're never trying to really get to what is really the meat of this of this thing. That enticement of a promise from the deceiving spirit, um, it hasn't ceased. It continues. And I think for some reason in the church, we think that we have things all pretty much well mapped out. That we can't be taken in anymore by these different practices. And I think for some of us in the church, we think that some of the things we're going to talk about here for a minute or two are very fringe. They're very outside. They're out on the side. They're not really thought about today. People don't do these different things. And I think that if you took a moment to have some conversations with some people on the street or even to peruse through bookstores, if they still exist, uh, to just look through some of the things that are falling under some of these uh, self-help, spiritual, religious sections, I think we'd be really, really, really surprised as to what's taken place. And a lot of these doctrines and these teachings, they've really kind of resurfaced because certain influential individuals have been able to bring them from obscurity, from ancient times, from old texts, and kind of breathe some new life into them. It kind of started at the end of the 1800s. If, you, uh, if you're a history buff, a little bit more than just your, your run-of-the-mill high school U.S. history, towards the end of the 1700s, beginning of the 1800s, the United States became a, an area that was pretty overrun with spiritist movements all over the place. Um, 
Johnny Appleseed? Do you know Johnny Appleseed? No, do you know him? Have you heard of Johnny Appleseed? Yeah. Um, does anyone remember the little hymn that's attributed to him? I won't sing it. The Lord is good to me, and so I thank the Lord. Um, do you know that he was a spiritist missionary? He was not a Christian. He was a Swedenborgian missionary. He was a spiritist. But a lot of the stuff that he said sounded very Christian. So even at that time, some of these foundational things, they, they kind of carried on through some of these different spiritist-type movements. Individuals like uh, Helena Blavatsky, Alice Bailey, Alistair Crowley, Anton LaVey, Gerald uh, Gardner, these individuals, among so many others, have become instrumental in taking very obscure things and just making them available. And then they kind of get picked up. And a lot of it is because there's a lot of Christianese kind of words used. They'll use words like spirit, God, Christ. You ever talked with someone and it sounds like they're talking about Christian things, but then they say Christ consciousness and that kind of jogs you out of what you're talking about? Anybody? Am I alone in talking to these people? How, how, am I, how are they finding me uh, then? You know? But no, there's a lot of people where there's these different connections. If you hear someone say Christ consciousness, you have to stop for a second. That's, that's an indication you're talking to somebody who's using Christian words, but they're not, not talking about Christian doctrine. Something else. Something different. There are a lot of practices that people are practicing, mostly outside the church, but sad to say, even sometimes inside the church, just coming in through different small groups or different Bible studies, different things, where these practices are starting to, to bubble up. And I'll read off a quick list. And I don't say this list to make anyone feel uncomfortable. If this is something that you've like, oh, I've read about that. Whoops, I have a book on that or something. I'm not, what do the kids say, throwing shade? I'm not trying to do that. It's just trying to highlight the fact that these things are kind of, they're, they're, they're making their way in. They're, the things are, these books are showing up. These, these resources are showing up. Um, astral projection. Anyone? Heard of that? Yeah. I see that by hand. Uh, Kabbalah, magic, or magic with a K. Non-duality, tree of life. There's a whole tree of life teaching that's pretty crazy. Mysticism. Eastern practices of, yo of uh, yoga, Gnosticism, tarot. That's becoming a huge thing all of a sudden. Transcendental meditation, uh, rituals of hexagram or pentagram, ascended masters. A lot of these practices, um, and, and also just general umbrella things that come to the New Age, they're starting to kind of eke their way in through just shared terminology. Well, people are starting to look into some of these things. A lot of these are just old, old, ancient practices that are repackaged in new clothes. I'll give you a specific one. And again, I gave this, this specific example. Not, I really don't want anyone to feel like I'm singling anyone out. I'm not. If you have this book, I understand. It was a huge deal. Jesus Calling. Um, this book, if you look into the, the origins of this one, this was channeled um, by a young girl named Sarah Young. She practiced something that was really close to automatic writing, which is something that was chiefly in the occult, 
where they would essentially attempt to turn off their brain and allow someone else, to, something else to fill them up and to move their hand, and they don't even know what they're writing until they're done, and they look and they see. So some of these different things, these, these um, like this book, for, for sure, I, I think I saw it in Costco. It's just a very common book. This looks like something that someone would pick up to say, this looks good. You read the front, you read the back. You don't even know. You take it home and you read it and you don't even really understand that these things might carry something that would be not great. Some of the more fringy stuff, uh, UFOs, fae, like fairies. You know, there are people who go take tours out into the woods to try to contact fairies. And they're not crazy people. They're looking for something. Walk-ins, their whole groups, sit in rooms and basically sit around and invite spirits to come walk inside them to gain knowledge. But they'll use different terminology, trying to look for something else. And I say all these things because there's a lot of people who need us to bring discernment to conversations, to lives. And some people may be practicing these things off on the side because they feel like this is where I'm finally getting some traction. I'm seeing something happen here that I'm not seeing when I, when I pray or when I read the scriptures or when I pray with someone else. I'm not seeing anything. But when I come and do some of these things, I'm seeing something happen, and that's kind of exciting. We have to be really careful. We have to really help people to understand that there's a difference between some of these practices and Christian doctrine that we should be hanging on to and holding on to. And for a long time, the Christian church enjoyed social and cultural majority in this country and different areas around the world. But that's no longer the case. So some of the things that we think, that's weird, 60 to 70% of the United States believes now. In the country right now, there are, I think it's 68% of the country thinks that there's extraterrestrials out in the universe somewhere. And you know, that statistic is exactly the same in the church. Now, if you thought that, and thought for a long time that you were alone, you might start getting to some of these groups that are trying to contact them through the spirit realm. That sounds so weird, but you know what? There are a lot of people who are getting into these things. And then there are other believers who are getting into some of these things because we don't talk about it. We don't bring these things up. We don't sit in, in um, Bible studies or discussion groups and talk about some of these things. Maybe some of you do. But these are things that are becoming not just known, but becoming prevalent. People are dedicating their lives to these things. The modern philosophies like transhumanism, they continue to make inroads in society and in the church. These things, these are dangerous ideologies we need to watch out for. It's easy to be taken in. If, if there is anyone here who has interacted with, done anything, read anything like that. I'm, 
I am, you're not going to surprise me. This is, <laughs> I've read through a lot of these things, but if you, if you want to talk through some of these topics, some of these issues, if you're someone who has interacted with some of these teachings and you're, you're experiencing oppression or something, please come and talk to me. I, I invite you to, to do that. I would love to have any kind of conversation that you like about any of these topics. I know there's other people in the church who have also studied into some of these things that would be more than happy to talk through some of these things. We're starting to see people who are being dragged away from the church through some of these topics. And so we want to open up those doors. Please, let's have all those conversations. I promise you, whatever weird thing you looked into, I will never laugh at you. I've seen a lot of weird stuff and read a lot of things, talked to a lot of different people. Please don't feel like you're by yourself. You can't talk to anyone. Open door. Please come talk. Let's do it. Promise you won't weird me out. Verse 3. Verse 3 uh, continues on with some of the ramifications for some of these teachings. They say, Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There is something that's unique about Marriage and foods in the Bible. I don't know if you've noticed, but those two things specifically, they come up. Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, they met to figure out should Gentiles be allowed to just join the church? Do they have to adhere to some form of Judaism or Jewish practices before joining? At the end, they said no. Nothing additional for you to do, but we would encourage you to not eat meat offered to idols, so food, and to not engage in sexual morality. Same two things. Genesis 1 through 3, actually. There's a lot of discussion of these two things. What was the prohibition in the, in the garden? Don't eat that fruit. In fact, God said, you can eat anything, but don't eat that one. Everything else is good for you. And the other big topic that was going on, the big topic of the day for Adam was marrying Eve. This idea of marriage uh, being fruitful and multiplying, that was really the only other thing they had to do in the garden. Here, tend the garden, you can eat anything, and be married, fill the earth. Again, those two topics. Matthew 24, Jesus addresses the same thing. He says, in the end, it's going to be just like it was during the days of Noah, specifically stating people will be marrying, giving marriage, eating and drinking, and then destruction will come. Again, eating food, marriage. What is the deal? Why is it these two things? Revelation chapter 2. In fact, we'll turn there real quick. Revelation chapter 2 Uh, Jesus directs John to write a letter to the church of Pergamum. We'll start in 14. He says, uh, but I have a few things against you, church of Pergamum. You have uh, some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak uh, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food offered to idols or sacrificed to idols and... Practice sexual immorality. Again, marriage, 
and food. But it shouldn't be too weird because actually as part of our faith, as part of our practice, what do we do every week? We have a meal. What are we looking forward to at the end? Jesus is returning, and what are we looking forward to? Looking forward to the bride, uh, the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, food, marriage, these things for some reason are really important. I think part of it is food is a daily thing, and there's a lot, there's a lot of spiritist practices, idolatry practices that are connected with food. Uh, even the Israelites, their food was also connected with worshiping, worshiping the Lord. Um, and then you also have, <clears throat> um, what was the other one? Marriage, yeah. Um, with marriage, it's a pivotal life event, right? It is, it is the joining of families. If you go around the world, every culture has something special and significant regarding Marriage, it's something that is, in every culture, identified, unique, uh, built up. It's this big event. And what do you do at a wedding? You eat. So it's also connected even within that. So you have these two really important things, and I think they do tie back to some of these really fundamental things of what it means to be a human being. In the garden, they ate and they're supposed to be in relationship. These are really, really important things. And so what Paul is telling Timothy is to say that the disruption that you'll see from these false doctrines are going to impact these pivotal, pivotal things. How you eat, what you eat, abstaining from certain things, you're going to start to see that come in. And a lot of times that comes in through different philosophies, different, different uh, religious practices. Today it's a little not quite the same, and I know that a lot of people are vegetarian or vegan for health reasons, but I tell you what, that is a whole philosophic movement that is starting to kind of become much more prevalent. So even through that, there are a lot of people being dragged away from sound biblical teaching to just focus on something different. And I'm not saying anything if you're vegan, understand me. I'm just saying that these are some of those things that can draw you away. Food is extremely important. We think about it probably every few hours. Food. And so if that's, if part of your ideology, your philosophy is connected to that, it's going to be a big deal. <clears throat> Back to 1 Timothy. Finishing out this passage here. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected as if it is to be received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Are all marriages good? Not all marriages end up good. But is marriage good? Marriage is good. and should be received with thanksgiving. Is, is, is all music good? But music, it's good. Relationships, is every relationship good? No, not every relationship is good for us, but all relationships should be received. All these different aspects of life, food, the practice of food, even just the patterns that we have throughout our lives, throughout seasons, these things were given to us by God, and they're given to us because they are good. 
When God was finished creating the world on the sixth day, he said, everything was good. It was, in fact, it was very good. These things are all good. They should be received that way. And if you have someone who's trying to draw you away from this understanding to say you can get greater enlightenment through abstaining from this or that, or you can have a different experience by abstaining from this or that, or to draw you away from either your current marriage relationship or marriage relationships in general, that can also be something else. Something's drawing you away from these good things. We got to watch out for those things. Those are things that are dangerous. Need to be evaluated, not just taken whole cloth. We have to be aware of the lies of man-made sanctification through specific means. And instead, we need to engage with the sanctification that God has given us. I wanted to finish out, because it's easy to finish out something like this on that negative note. Second Timothy, which we're not going to be teaching through, sadly, but I wanted to just read this passage, and this will kind of be the conclusion. This is what we should be focusing on. So we should be discerning, we should be watching out for doctrines of demons, because in the latter days people will be taken away by those things, right? But what should we do now? Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, this is again Paul talking to Timothy. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, <clears throat> for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day, what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Father, thank you for these good words that we have. Lord, thank you for good doctrine, good teaching. Lord, I pray that, Lord, as we're in those latter days and, Lord, approaching the latter days, I pray you would guard our hearts, you would guard our minds, you would guard our souls, you would guard our bodies. Lord, I pray you would keep us from the evil one, that you would keep us from false doctrines that might lead us astray, that would lead us to stray from you, from the sound teaching that we've received. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be disciplined in our minds. Lord, that we would rely on each other to help us in discernment. Lord, if we don't have good discernment, help, help us to connect with people who do so that ours can grow. Lord, I pray that we would rely on the movement of the Spirit to allow us to discern what is good, what is helpful. And Lord, I pray that you would make us ready. 
I pray you'd make us ready to be able to oppose false teaching, Lord, to help others to understand what is good and what the Lord requires of us. Lord, I pray that we would be so enamored with the good teachings that you've given us, Lord, that we can never be enticed away, Lord, and that we would continually be calling others, Lord, to submit to you, to love you, Lord, to rely on your grace and your finished work, Lord, to save us, not our own works, but your works. Lord, I pray you'd make us people who are steadfast in this. I pray this for each individual, and I pray this for refuge as a whole. I pray you'd make us a household that is ready, Lord, to withstand what is coming. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.